Most of the time, when people in the United States on the left talk about dealing with economic injustice, they leave this part out about the centrality of race. And I think by doing that, not only is it dishonest, it makes it very difficult to build coalitions. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, each episode I do usually has a very easily identifiable theme. It needs no explanation, but other times it's a little bit more murky, and this is one of those times, so I just want to set the stage here. Uh, a few episodes back, there was a caller who asked if focusing on what he referred to as identity politics was a distraction for more important issues, such as shifting away from capitalism and its its tendency to push us into imperialistic foreign wars. I already responded to that call in the form of a commentary at the end of episode 1017 on May 31st, essentially saying that it's better to form coalition movements that bind together those fighting against sexism and racism and other often siloed movements than to see those movements as a distraction and attempt to sweep them aside. Today's episode is a continuation on that thought covering the intersection of economics, systemic racism, and the patriarchy, focusing on how these ingrained cultural biases aren't just bad for members of oppressed groups, but also for white men who we usually think of as the beneficiaries of inequality, making this the perfect starting point for a unifying conversation about the need for systemic change on all fronts, economic and cultural. And now, Welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, with clips today from Tom Hartman, a TED Talk by Michael Kimmel, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, and The Laura Flanders Show. This is Martin Luther King talking about democratic socialism. He said, you can't talk about solving the economic problems of the Negro without talking about billions of dollars. You can't talk about ending the slums without first saying the profit must be taken out of slums. You're really tampering and getting on dangerous ground because you are messing with folk then. You are messing with the captains of industry. Now, this means that we are treading in difficult water because it really means that we are saying that something is wrong with capitalism. There must be a better distribution of wealth, and maybe America must move toward a democratic socialism. End of quote from the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. It was a speech that he gave in Frogmore, South Carolina, November 14th, 1966. I'm here to recruit men to support gender equality. Wait, wait, what? What, does, what do men have to do with gender equality? Gender equality is about women, right? I mean, the word women, the word gender is about women. Actually, I'm even here speaking as a middle-class white man. Now, I wasn't always a middle-class white man. It all happened for me about 30 years ago, when I was in graduate school. And a bunch of us graduate students got together one day, and we said, you know, there's an explosion of writing and thinking in feminist theory, but there's no courses yet. So we did what graduate students typically do in a situation like that. We said, OK, let's have a study group. We'll read a text, 
We'll talk about it. We'll have a potluck dinner. <laughs> so every week, 11 women and me got together. <laughs> We would read some text in feminist theory and have a conversation about it. And during one of our conversations, I witnessed an interaction that changed my life forever. It was a conversation between two women. One of the women, one of the women was white and one was black. And the white woman said, this is going to sound very anachronistic now, the white woman said, all women face the same oppression as women. All women are similarly situated in patriarchy, and therefore, all women have a kind of intuitive solidarity or sisterhood. And the black woman said, I'm not so sure. <laughs> Let me ask you a question. So the black woman says to the white woman, when you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror, what do you see? And the white woman said, I see a woman. And the black woman said, you see, that's the problem for me. Because when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, she said, I see a black woman. To me, race is visible. But to you, race is invisible. You don't see it. And then she said something really startling. She said, that's how privilege works. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. It is a luxury, I will say, to the white people sitting in this room, not to have to think about race every split second of our lives. Privilege is invisible to those who have it. Now, remember, I was the only man in this group. So when I witnessed this, I went, oh, no. <laughs> and somebody said, well, what was that reaction? And I said, well, when I wake up in the morning and I look in the mirror, I see a human being. I'm kind of the generic person. You know, I'm a middle-class white man. I have no race, no class, no gender. I'm universally generalizable. <laughs> so I like to think that was the moment I became a middle-class white man. That class and race and gender were not about other people. They were about me. I had to start thinking about them. And it had been privileged that it kept it invisible to me for so long. Now, I wish I could tell you the story ends 30 years ago in that little discussion group. But I was reminded of it quite recently at my university where I teach. I have a colleague, and she and I both teach the Sociology of Gender course on alternate semesters. So she gives a guest lecture. For me, when I teach, I give a guest lecture for her when she teaches. So I walk into her class to give a guest lecture, about 300 students in the room. And as I walk in, one of the students looks up and says, oh, finally, an objective opinion. <laughs> All that semester, Whenever my colleague opened her mouth, what my students saw was a woman. I mean, if you were to say to my students, there is structural inequality based on gender in the United States, they'd say, well, of course you'd say that. You're a woman. You're biased. When I say it, they go, wow, is that interesting? Is that going to be on the test? How do you spell structural? <laughs> so I hope you all can see this is what objectivity looks like. disembodied Western rationality. <laughs> And that, by the way, is why I think men so often wear ties. <laughs> Because if you are going to embody disembodied Western rationality, you need a signifier. And what could be a better signifier of disembodied Western rationality than a garment that at one end is a noose and the other end points to the genitals? <laughs> That is mind-body dualism right there. <laughs>
So, making gender visible to men is the first step to engaging men to support gender equality. Now, when men first hear about gender equality, when they first start thinking about it, they often think many many men think, well, that's right, that's fair, that's just, that's the ethical imperative. But not all men. Some men think the lightning bolt goes off, and they go, "Oh my God, yes, gender equality!" And they will immediately begin to mansplain to you your oppression. <laughs> uh, they, they, they see supporting gender equality something akin to the cavalry. Like, thanks very much for bringing this to our attention, ladies. We'll take it from here. <laughs> this results in a syndrome that I like to call premature self-congratulation. There's another group, though, that actively resists gender equality, that sees gender equality as something that is detrimental to men. I was on a TV talk show opposite four white men. This is the beginning of my, the book I wrote, Angry White Men. These were four angry white men who believed that they, white men in America, were the were the victims of reverse discrimination in the workplace. And they all told stories about how they were qualified for jobs, qualified for promotions. They didn't get them. They were really angry. And the reason I'm telling you this is I want you to hear the title of this particular show. It was a quote from one of the men, and the quote was, "A black woman stole my job." <laughs> and they all told their stories: qualified for jobs, qualified for promotions, didn't get it, really angry. And then it was my turn to speak, and I said, "I have just one question for you guys, and it's about the title of the show." A black woman stole my job. Actually, it's about one word in the title. I want to know about the word "my." Where did you get the idea it was your job? Why isn't the title of the show "A Black Woman Got the Job" or "A Black Woman Got a Job"? Because without confronting men's sense of entitlement, I don't think we'll ever understand why so many men resist gender equality. Look, we think this is a level playing field. So any policy that tilts it even a little bit, we think, oh my God, water's rushing uphill. It's reverse discrimination against us. <laughs> so let me be very clear: white men in Europe and the United States are the beneficiaries of the single greatest affirmative action program in the history of the world. It is called the History of the World. <laughs> So now we've, I've established some of the obstacles to engaging men. But why should we support gender equality? Of course, it's fair, it's right, and it's just. But more than that, gender equality is also in our interest as men. If you listen to what men say about what they want in their lives, gender equality is actually a way for us to get the lives we want to live. Gender equality is good for countries. It turns out, according to most studies, it turns out that those countries that are the most gender equal are also the countries that score highest on the happiness scale. And that's not just because they're all in Europe. <laughs> Even within Europe, those countries that are more gender equal also have the highest levels of happiness. It is also good for companies. Research by Catalyst and others has shown conclusively that the more gender equal companies are, the, the better the,、uh, the, the better it is for workers, 
the happier their labor force is, they have lower job turnover, they have lower levels of attrition, they have an easier time recruiting, they have higher rates of retention, higher job satisfaction, higher rates of productivity. So the question that I'm often asked by in companies is, boy, this gender equality thing, that's really going to be expensive, huh? And I say, oh no. In fact, what you, can, you have to start calculating is how much gender inequality is already costing you. It is extremely expensive. So it is good for business. And the other thing is, it's good for men. It is good for the kind of lives we want to live. Because young men, especially, have changed enormously. And they want to have lives that are animated by terrific relationships with their children. They expect their partners, their spouses, their wives to work outside the home and be just as committed to their careers as they are. I was talking, give you an illustration of this change. Some of you may remember this. When, we were, when I was a lot younger, I remember being, there was a riddle that was posed to us. And some of you may wince to remember this riddle. This riddle went something like this. A man, a, a man and his son are driving on the freeway and they're in a terrible accident and the father is killed. And the son is brought to the hospital emergency room. And as they're bringing the son into the hospital emergency room, the emergency room attending physician sees the, sees the boy and says, oh, I can't treat him, that's my son. How is this possible? We were flummoxed by this. <laughs> We could not figure this out. Well, I decided to do a little experiment with my 16-year-old son. He had a bunch of, 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 of his friends. Uh, hanging out at the house watching a, a game on TV recently. So I decided I would pose this riddle to them just to see, to gauge the level of change. Well, 16-year-old boys, they immediately turned to me and said, it's his mom, right? No problem, just like that. Except for my son who said, well, he could have two dads. <laughs> That's an index, an indicator of how things have changed. Younger men today expect to be able to, have, to balance work and family. They want dual career, dual care, to be dual, dual career, dual care couples. They want to be able to balance work and family with their partners. They want to be involved fathers. Now, it turns out that the more egalitarian our relationships, the happier both partners are. Data from psychologists and sociologists are quite persuasive here. I think we have the, the persuasive numbers, the data, to prove to men that gender equality is not a zero-sum game, but a win-win. Here's what the data show. Now, when men begin the process of, 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 uh, share, of, of engaging with balancing work and family, we often have two phrases that we use to describe what we do. We, um, we pitch in and we help out. Um, and I'm going to propose something a little bit more radical. One word, share. Because <laughs> here's what the data show. When men share housework and childcare, their children do better in school. Their children have lower rates of absenteeism, higher rates of achievement. They are less likely to be diagnosed with ADHD. They are less likely to be see a, a child psychiatrist. They are less likely to be put on medication. So when men share housework and childcare, Their children are happier and healthier. And men want this. When men share housework and childcare, their wives are happier. Well, duh. <laughs> Not only that, their wives are healthier. 
Their wives are less likely to be see a therapist, less likely to be diagnosed with depression, less likely to be put on medication, more likely to go to the gym, report higher levels of marital satisfaction. So when men share housework and childcare, their wives are happier and healthier, and men certainly want this as well. When men share housework and childcare, the men are healthier. They smoke less, drink less, take recreational drugs less often. They are less likely to go to the ER, but more likely to go to a doctor for routine screenings. They are less likely to see a therapist, less likely to be diagnosed with depression, less likely to be taking prescription medication. So when men share housework and childcare, the men are happier and healthier. And who wouldn't want that? And finally, when men share housework and childcare, they have more sex. Now, of these four fascinating findings, which one do you think Men's Health magazine put on its cover? <laughs> Housework makes her horny. <laughs> not, not when she does it. Um, now, I will say, uh, just to, to remind uh, the men in the audience, uh, th this, um, these data were collected over a really long period of time, so I don't want uh, listeners to, to say, hmm, okay, I think I'll do the dishes tonight. These data were collected over a really long period of time. <laughs> But I think it shows something important. Um, that when Men's Health magazine put it on their cover, they also called it, you'll love this, chore play. Oh so, what we found is something really important. That gender equality is in the interests of countries, of companies, and of men, and their children, and their partners that gender equality is not a zero-sum game, it's not a win-lose, it is a win-win for everyone. And what we also know is we cannot fully empower women and girls unless we engage boys and men. We know this. And my position is that men need the very things that women have identified that they need to live the lives they say we, they want to live in order to live the lives that we say we want to live. In 1915, on the eve of one of the great suffrage demonstrations down Fifth Avenue in New York City, a writer in, in New York wrote an article in a magazine, and the title of the magazine, the title of the article was "Feminism for Men." And this was the first line of that article: "Feminism will make it possible for the first time for men to be free." I'm very proud to have with me again, and partly, by the way, because so many of you have written in asking me to bring back Dr. Harriet Fraud, who is a mental health counselor and a hypnotherapist with a private practice in New York City. And she also writes prolifically in a variety of places on politics, economics, and how they intersect and interact with personal life. And that's indeed why I wanted to to join with us today, because as she will explain, 
there's been some recent research that has really touched precisely on the interaction between economics and personal life. And so this is a perfect opportunity to explore that. So thank you very much, Dr. Fraud, for joining Glad us. Glad to be here. So tell us, if you will, in a few words, what is this new research, who performed it, and what basically does it tell us? Well, it's a very recent study by Case and Deaton talking about a phenomenon which they are not the only people on which, not they're not the only people who reported it. It's the phenomenon of middle-aged white men, particularly those who are not college educated, being in having much higher levels of mortality, dying sooner, being addicted, and dying often of things like alcoholism, cirrhosis of the liver, of drug overdoses, of opioid overdoses, and depression, because depression certainly spurs a wish to die. Suicide has gone crazy, for example, you know, it's five and a half times higher than it used to be for middle-aged white men without college degrees. So that there is a phenomenon of people who used to be at the height of their careers feeling hopeful about life and having high health expectancies to be zooming downward at a rapid clip. Okay, just for the audience, um, Deaton is the same economist who won the Nobel Prize this year, 2015. So he's a very well recognized. I believe both Case and Deaton are at Princeton University yes, in are. New Jersey, uh, a very prestigious institution in the United States. So we have as qualified a set of researchers as one could hope for telling us and basically alarming us that a major part of our population, middle-aged white men, are in terrible personal shape. So that's the research. Let me ask you as a practitioner, someone who has a private practice, have you seen in the clients that you see, in the patients you have, evidence that supports or questions or qualifies what Deaton and Case have found? Well, what I see is just what Case and Deaton have found. What I see is that men who used to think that they were going somewhere and now can't are in terrible shape. In the first place, they can't, you know, people who looked forward to continuing the hardware store they used to have or the drugstore they used to have or the luncheonette they used to own are now replaced like places by places like Home Depot, by Walmart, by McDonald's. They don't have the future of a small business. They also don't have the future of well-paying blue-collar jobs. This crisis is across all groups, but it's most dramatic among white men without high school or high school and lower educational qualifications who used to be able to get jobs in things like construction, heavy machinery, high-power sales, those jobs have been robotized, computerized, or outsourced to other countries. And so, and they're middle-aged now, people don't want to hire them because they're going to get sicker faster, and so that they are the last to be hired. And at the same time, one of the things that has happened is the economy has shifted 
so that the biggest sectors for jobs are things like food service and the lower level medical trades, which were traditional pink collar jobs. And in addition to that, social service work, which has become the dominant employment, was associated with traditional women's jobs. Women have replaced men as the managers of almost everything because women's skills in conciliation and coordination and in defusing a situation rather than a kind of testosterone pushing are the ones that are needed. And so men have been demoted and that, that has converted itself on, in personal life to the higher rate of divorce now among middle-aged people. And for the first time in our history, 69 point something, almost 70% of divorces are initiated by women. Because what happened is these tradition, these men who grew up in a traditional way, that they would be the providers and that their wives would take care of house, home, children and their personal needs, whether sexual or emotional, don't have that. They still have the mentality that women should serve them, but women are, have, are more frequently employed than they are. 40% of households have a primary wage earner who's a woman. And so they're not willing to come home and serve men and certainly can't full-time the way these men are used to. And so that they're demoted at home as well as at the workplace, and they face a level of precarity and fear and instability in their marriages, which they usually could count on before, previously could count on, and in their jobs. I have a client who used to have a little store, and that store was outmoded by Walmart, and therefore he went out of business. What happened is his wife became the more dominant person in the household because she was still working. And so his authority was reduced. The children looked at her rather than him. If he told them to do something, they looked at her to make sure she agreed. She started treating him as if he were a nobody and he was feeling suicidal. That's why the suicide rate and is five and a half times greater than it used to be for middle for middle-aged blue-collar workers or people without a college degree and white people right? white people and then she decided look you know you're really not much of a man I'm leaving and you're not a provider and you're making demands that are inappropriate he wanted more sex to assert himself that he was a man and she thought Wait a minute, I come home tired, I'm providing for the family. He wanted her to make more meals, to take care of him so he'd feel like more of a man. She thought, oh no you don't, you're home all day. And, you know, the average unemployed man does less housework than his fully employed wife. So she thought, I don't need this. And therefore, rejected him. And he came to me with severe severe depression and feelings of uselessness and a preoccupation with suicide. He's not the only one. I have another client who was a construction manager and his job has been 
outsource because people get prefab construction or hire lower cost immigrants. And his position at home is similarly demoted. And what his idea was and his hope for was that he would be constantly making more money, having the pride of being a provider for his family, and having a wife who took care of his personal needs at home. That isn't happening. Not only that, I have another client who did find a job, but like most middle-aged, non-educated white men, as well as educated white men, the recession has meant the job he found is way beneath the one he used to have. So he can't make the share of household income he used to have. And his wife is furious that he has these expectations and she's exhausted. She went to school to have a higher paid job. The problem that a lot of blue collar men felt it was kind of unmanly to go to school to keep going to school as, as an adult. And so they don't. The majority of higher educational students are women. Right. And blue collar men can't make a living. And so that, you know, their interests diverge. His wife, who makes quite a bit of money as a pharmacist, a trade that is being taken over by women, now that there are shifts in these big pharmacies because women can take care of children and still be a pharmacist, she put herself through school and her interests have diverged. He likes to hang out with his buddies, drink beer, go to the bar. He likes to watch TV for programs that she finds violent and stupid. And she's getting ready to check out. So women won't, you know, women won't put up with what they used to and they're tired. There's no reason why they should. And so these men have been dispossessed both personally and economically. And a lot of their sense of self-worth was tied up with their net worth. And they feel worthless. Things could be stranger, but I don't know how. I'm going through changes now. Could spend a lifetime trying to figure it out. Changes now that have just begun under a purple sun. There's many reasons we are what we've become. I'm going through changes, ripping out pages. I'm going through changes now. Capital is intersectional, says guest Zila Eisenstein on the Laura Flanders show this week. People with bodies labor, which means that the capital they produce is immersed in race and gender. Just like the bodies that make it, wealth's not colorless or gender-free. So anyone who pretends otherwise just isn't serious about reducing inequality. With gender equality more of a priority than ever, women still represent 70% of the world's poor, according to the United Nations. They earn less than men, about half as much, even in advanced economies, even as they do more work, almost two and a half times as much when you include unpaid labor. And inequality between rich and poor women isn't shrinking, it's growing, reports the UN. In the U.S., a 2011 study found that fully 40% of single female heads of household were living in poverty, 
and the numbers for women of color were even worse. Sure, the rise of extremism, war, and the concentration of financial and corporate power hasn't helped. Still, in these same two decades, women have gained legal rights, rights they can defend in court, more girls have gone to school, more women have gotten elected and become leaders. So what's going on? Today's inequalities can't be explained simply by the lack of legal rights or discrimination, says the United Nations, nor are they inevitable. What we know from our guests, women like Aijin Poo of the National Domestic Workers Alliance or Saru Jayaraman of the Restaurant Workers, is that equality hasn't come from access to more precarious and poisonous jobs or an ever-expanding workday. The gig economy isn't the answer either. What's needed is fundamental change, what many are calling the next new system. But that has got to come with explicit attention to racial and gender justice. In 2016, The Laura Flanders Show will be producing a series of special reports on race, gender, and the next economy with our friends at the Democracy Collaborative. Tell us what you think. If capital's intersectional, what's our intersectional transformation going to look like? And where do you see it happening? As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. You know, this is, this is the United States, and we tend to make personal even the things that are or should be understood as social problems. Do you, does your practice give you a sense of whether people, when they come to you, do they understand the broader social economic changes that are bringing about their problems, or do they see it as a personal failure? They see it as a personal failure, and they sink into personal dimensions and de of depression. You know, it's not like the 1930s when hundreds of thousands of unemployed people marched in the streets demanding jobs. We don't also have job programs to do the needed things to rebuild our infrastructure, which is crumbling, to have subways that work consistently, to have clean parks, to have after-school programs. We don't have any of those things. And um, so that there aren't these jobs. and men are lost. And what's interesting is they've basically lost hope. A curious thing in the Case and Deaton study is what they call the Hispanic paradox. Usually what happens is the poorer people are, 
the worse their health outcomes. Now, of course, that's if you have to go to a clinic and wait forever or you can't afford the health visit, you don't bother until you're terribly ill and then you go to an emergency room where people don't know you and where you wait forever and so on. And so a very remarkable thing has happened. Hispanic men who are high school educated or less have greater life expectancies every year and less depression, whereas white middle-aged men, Hispanic middle-aged men, are doing better and better. One of the reasons that America's health outcomes are among the, well, they're the worst in the developed world and among the worst of any country that's industrialized and developed is because this wild discrepancy between the health care of the haves and the health care of the don't-haves, have-nots. And so that what they're trying to figure out, why are middle-aged Hispanic men doing so much better? Why don't they commit suicide as frequently? And what is the answer? Why do whites commit su- white middle-aged non-educated men commit suicide five and a half times more than Hispanic men of the same age group and education level? And what looks to be the case, certainly for me, and Case and Deaton share this idea, is that for those Hispanic men, most of whom came recently from Mexico or Central America, life is better than it used to be. They're looking forward to being better providers. They're looking forward to a better life for their children. The work that they get is not as well paid, but for them it's much better than what they were used to. And so they have a sense of hope that they're doing better. Whereas for the white man, for the here, white the... blue collar male, he's doing worse than he ever expected, and therefore his sense of himself and his future is different. That's why whites are now the biggest increase in heroin users. They're they're growing faster and faster in their addictions of every kind, and they're dying more. Those are not healthy. Those addictions and so... hopelessness is correlated with bad health and depression. In a sense, this has always been known, that it is not just a measure of what your standard of living is or your standard of working. It's also how it relates to your your head, how you think of yourself, where you are in, in life or in change. If you think you're on the way up, then you can feel good about a low-paid job, whereas if it's a on the way down for you, then the low job is the proof that you're sinking. It's that the, you're no good. That you're no good. And so we can understand how different groups, but it's very interesting that their research led them to see this issue once again in these, in these lights. What do you, as a practitioner, this is then a problem of the individual who's deeply depressed but also of an economic system that is not treating large numbers of people very well. How do you juggle those two dimensions when you, when you work with the folks that come to see you? Well, one is that I help those people see the social and political dimension of their suffering and also what they could do because to that, change let, it. let me interrupt you. You show them the political and social causes, influences, producing their their suffering. And you do that because what? It relieves them at least 
of the self-blame part? It relieves them of the self-blame, and it gives them a basis on which to reach out to others like them and connect with other people so they're less isolated, isolated. in their pain. One of the things that drives the lower health outcomes is that when you're depressed and anxious, your body responds to a crisis. You know, our crises when we were developing as a species was, you know, a large animal is pursuing us. And so therefore, all immunity is depressed. All immune systems go down and a fight for survival is what happens. Well, if you're stressed all the time, your immune system is shut off. And you get sick. And you get, you're much more susceptible to disease, as well as the psychological social diseases like addiction, obesity, and so on. You know, that opioid addiction is huge in that population, heroin addiction for the first time. So then telling, working with a person so that, who comes to see you, so that they understand that this is a social economic process, not a personal failure, that this is in fact happening to millions of other people who didn't suddenly start failing, having been perfectly good citizens up until, you know, the last decade or so. This is going to help them avoid the self-destruction, physical and mental, that comes if you're alone, if you're isolated, and and if you blame yourself for a problem that really isn't your doing. And it allows people to connect. I also see couples and explain to them that the women's liberation movement gave women a chance to hope for uh, an expanded role, not to necessarily devalue the nurturing work that they did at home, but to expand themselves into the workplace. But because that work was considered crap, in part by the feminist movement and in part by men beneath them, they didn't learn what they could learn from taking care of a home and making it beautiful, of the excitement of watching children grow and helping empower them. And so that one of the things that couples need is they need to devalue the work that the society hasn't paid and hasn't valued, which is the work of creating a home, of making people comfortable, of emotional kindness, of nurturing of children, of creating creative meals, which would then allow men to not feel humiliated by picking up a greater share of the household labor in terms of the decoration, of the cleaning, of the nurturing of children. And so that instead of a humiliation, which would be taking on some of those tasks, It becomes an opportunity or it can become an opportunity which would allow the give and take between men and women to be better. Men's ways of asserting their masculinity won't be going out and drinking with their buddies as much as taking care of their kids and feeling like a good man for it. So that there are both personal ways and also social ways of both understanding what has happened, the callousness of Capitalists who see only their own profit, regardless of the pain that they're inflicting, and also the opportunity in changing traditional gender roles that would allow marriages and connections to exist and thrive instead of be frayed and destroyed. I'm married in the sun. Tell me where to-
Ryan Cooper has a, a really interesting piece over at theweek.com. You'll recall back, I think it was Tuesday this week, I was talking about how uh, middle-aged, middle-class white men are committing suicide and, and dying from alcoholism and drug addiction at a rate that is causing the death rate for the entire cohort of, of white men from roughly 35 to 60, or 35 to 54, as I recall, is the age range, uh, is causing their death rate to go up in ways that we haven't seen since the collapse, in any demographic like that, since the collapse of the Soviet Union. If for a couple of years there after the collapse of the Soviet Union, similarly, you saw men dying like this for this reason. And it was, you know, because of economic uh, uncertainty. But Ryan, Ryan, you know, and, and, and the, the thing that I had missed in my analysis of this, you know, I talked about racism. I talked about how, you know, my dad had that middle middle class, white middle class dream, uh, you know, of when he came back from World War II, of getting a job in a tool and die shop and, and getting a home in a suburb with the GI Bill and all, all these things that most of most African-Americans were blocked from in the 50s. And and my point was, we need to be sure if we're going to put this economy back together, if we're going to change our trade policies, if we're going to bring our factories home, if we're going to put our cities back to work, that we do so in a way that's colorblind, that that or, you know, to the extent it can be that 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 is all inclusive, because by and large, the boom, the middle class boom in the 50s, I mean, we were a segregated, a legally segregated society at that time. That boom was largely confined to white men about the age who are committing suicide now. And they're committing suicide because that future that they thought they had, that they grew up with, uh, you know, looking back on their parents, they don't have it. But Brian Cooper says poor white Americans are dying of despair and racism is to blame. And, uh, you know, I thought this was fascinating. He, he, he says, well, basically... That, you know, poverty isn't, he says, uh, American poverty is increasingly brutal. Male wages in the bottom fifth of the income ladder, for example, for instance, have fallen by over 30% since the late 60s and inequality has exploded. These days, those in the top 1% capture virtually all economic growth. I mean, if you've ever listened to Bernie Sanders, you know that to be the case. But then it gets really interesting. He says, now, the reason that, so, okay, you've got that. And you've got all these white, you know, quote, middle class men, middle aged, middle class men who, you know, in in a previous generation right now at, the, at this point in their lives would have been making, you know, in today's dollars, 30, 40,000 bucks a year. In some cases, much more than that, 50, 60,000 dollars a year in some cases and so even 70,000 in some of the more specialized factory jobs. And now they're laid off. They don't have a job. And. The social safety net in America is not strong enough to catch them. Right? Unemployment has been limited to a year in most places. The Republicans two years ago refused to extend long-term federal unemployment. It, it still has, you know, it's still, it's still blocked. Welfare is only available for a maximum of five years. We are, what, six or seven years into a great recession. And, and he points out that the reason why during the Clinton administration, they, they cut back on welfare. Uh, during the uh, Reagan administration, they, they, they cut back on housing and education assistance. During, uh, you know, it, it just basically through this whole thing. 
is that uh, and why universities have become more expensive. Uh, they've done away with free education, their disability insurance, unemployment insurance, all dialed back. No child allowance, no paid vacation, stuff like that. The reason all that stuff has gone away is because historically, the white people who are the majority of the voters voted against it because they believed, this is going back to Reagan's welfare queen thing, they believed that these welfare benefits were going to black people. And the white people were saying, you know, we don't want to be paying taxes to be supporting a bunch of black freeloaders. And now the white people are in the position of needing those resources, and they're not there. Which is something African Americans could have told you for a long, long time. should we be concerned about economic disparity? Our next guest, anti-racism activist and writer Tim Wise, says we're living in a culture of cruelty, one in which we celebrate the excessively rich while shaming and punishing the poor. Wise's anti-racism work traces back to his days as a college activist in the 80s, fighting for divestment from apartheid South Africa. He also worked as the youth coordinator and associate director of the Louisiana Coalition Against Racism and a community organizer in New Orleans public housing. He's the author of six books, most notably his highly acclaimed memoir, White Like Me, Reflections on Race from a Privileged Son. His latest book, Under the Affluence, Shaming the Poor, Praising the Rich, and Sacrificing the Future of America, is out this month. Welcome to the program, Tim. Glad to have you back. Thank you. Glad to be back. So let's start with this question of cruelty. Yeah. Describe a little bit what you mean by the culture of cruelty that we live with. Well, I mean by that, if you, know, if you look at the history of, let's say, the last 80 years, go back 75, 80 years ago, what was interesting is that in the wake of the Depression, at least insofar as white folks were concerned, this country became an incredibly, um, you know, not, I'm not going to say generous, but certainly more forbearing nation with regard to poor folks. We understood that the market didn't work. We understood the state had a role to play in providing jobs and housing and all of those things. And it was something that most average Americans supported. Uh, and that really remained the case all through the 40s, all through the 50s, FHA loans, GI Bill, VA loans, only when people of color came to you know, be seen as the public face of government programs did that switch. And since that time, we've heard the rhetoric of cruelty, the rhetoric of shaming the poor, the rhetoric of a culture of poverty having trapped people and how government somehow has made them dependent. So this isn't the rhetoric of 70 years ago, but it is now. How different is that than what we've seen in other countries? Because certainly when it comes to inequality and disparity, Thomas Piketty, lots of others have pointed out this is kind of a global issue. If you look at the countries of Europe where some of these 
these same phenomena are playing out. I would say the root of it is very similar. You know, it's interesting. Go back to the 70s when Margaret Thatcher was running uh, to, to be the head of state in the UK. She was not campaigning on, on getting rid of the NHS. She did not say we're going to get rid in Great Britain of National Health Service. Yes, the Conservative Party wanted to, you know, make it more efficient. They wanted to do all kinds of, you know, changes. But it was understood as something that Brits took for granted that mm-hmm. was important and valuable. Um, now, there is real talk there and in Germany and all throughout, um, you know, uh, Western European nations who were no and Northern European nations known for Scandinavian countries known for their social welfare programs about, well, you know, maybe we should rethink this. Well, why are they doing that? I would suggest one of the reasons is that as immigrants from North Africa, as immigrants from the so-called Middle East have come into those countries, now you have these white folks who are saying, oh, wait, you mean it's not just going to be my cousin or my family or people like me? It's the same thing that's happening in the U.S. So I would suggest that some of the pushback against social welfare safety nets is there as well as here, connected to the feeling, the perception, often very inaccurate, that people of color are the ones who are taking advantage of or abusing the person. Do you have your favorite example of, of cruelty? Because some of the quotes in your book are yeah. just stomach turning. Well, I mean, you know, as one example, and this was important to me because as you, you know, as you mentioned in the setup, I'm, I lived in New Orleans for 10 years. So in the wake of Katrina, like a lot of folks who had been there, I, I know people who've been displaced still have not been able to get back, know people who lost uh, uh, friends and family. And uh, at the time, you know, there was a lot of rhetoric. And I think this is where I saw a lot of the cruelty ramped up because for about 48 hours, there seemed to be an outpouring of national sympathy. People were stunned. They were shocked that we would leave people behind. Now, I would argue black New Orleanians weren't shocked mm-hmm. at all. They had been left behind, moved around, displaced, you know, generation in and generation out. But in the wake of that, you know, after about 72 hours, 96 hours, a week later, all of a sudden we saw this real turn in the mood and conservative talk show hosts started talking about the people there as if they were parasites. Neil Bortz, a very prominent right wing talk show host and, and writer actually said that he said they were vermin, they were leeches, they were parasites, they were toenail fungus um, of America and that they, you know, sat on their asses, he said, when the storm came and didn't want to leave because they were waiting for their welfare check. Not only was that incredibly cruel and demeaning, it was also false because at the time of Katrina, there were 132,000 households, at least in the city, only 4,500 of which received any form of cash welfare. So the percentage of people in New Orleans who were actually receiving the so-called generous benefits of the welfare state was very small, but that became the narrative. And to me, when you are bashing people who are literally, you know, before the city had even been rebuilt, people displaced, um, it really takes cruelty, you know, to a whole new level. Yeah. Now we could talk, a lot about similar examples, and you have a lot in your book, and this whole question of culture, and you talk a lot about the role of the media. Um, But I would love to go back to something you said at the beginning about the structure of our economy and its relationship to racism. We've had Scott Nakagawa on this program talking about the way that slavery was how we built capitalism in America. As an anti-racist yourself, how do you see those connections? Well, I think that's very accurate to, to say that. I mean, in the book, what I try to trace out is the somewhat unique way in which the class system in the U.S. developed, as opposed to other nations. The point that I try to make, you know, is if you think about sort of old feudal monarchies of Europe, um, the thing was, if you were poor, I mean, if you were a peasant, if you were working class, you knew it. You knew you weren't going to be nobility. You were never going to have wealth and riches. Unless there was a revolution, you were going to die a peasant just as you had been born. In this country, we have this. We have two things, quote unquote, going for us, which actually make it very hard to create economic justice. One is that myth of meritocracy that says everybody can make it if they just work hard. So now the peasant thinks, well, I don't have to be a peasant. If I just double down and work 60 hours a week, maybe 70, 
then I'll be rich one day. And then the second thing is that we've had this system of racial caste and white supremacy, which has told the white worker that, you know, you may not have much, but at least you're not black or at least you're not indigenous or at least you're not Mexican or at least you're not Chinese labor working on the railroads. We will elevate you, not much, because we are rich and we don't like you poor white folks either, but we like you enough to make you think you're part of the team. And so I trace out that history in the book and showing how the elite, you know, turned working class white folks against working class and poor African peoples and and Latino folk and Asian folk going all the way back to the colonies as a way to cement what W.E.B. Du Bois called the psychological wage of whiteness, being a wage that, you know, you may not have a lot of money, you certainly don't have wealth, but you have the ability to think to yourself that you're special because you have this particular skin. So if it's so systemic, how do we uproot it? Well, I think part of it is we have to be honest about the cause of that inequality. Most of the time when people in the United States on the left talk about dealing with economic injustice, they leave this part out about the centrality of race. And I think by doing that, not only is it dishonest, it makes it very difficult to build coalitions. If you're going to build a coalition to create a more economically just society, but you're not willing to actually name the thing that's making it hard to organize that coalition, how do you build it? It makes you think of some of the uh, Bernie Sanders conflict with the meat. Black Lives Matter folks this summer during the campaign. Right. I mean, I think that his campaign narrative would be so much stronger. Not only had he led with that from the beginning, but if he would weave into his economic justice argument, this argument about, you know, the thing that is keeping working class people from joining together to fight for a better deal in this country is racial division. And here's how the elite have sown it. And here's how the elite have manipulated us and pitted us against one another. And until white workers understand the common interest they have with black and brown workers in this country, they're going to continue to bank that psychological wage, meanwhile getting their ass kicked in the market, which is what we've seen. How do you see your role and the role of white anti-racist activists at a moment like that? For example, with the Bernie Sanders Black Lives Matter confrontation, was there a role for you to play? You know, I think as a white anti-racist educator, my role is typically to follow the lead of leadership of color. And and so when when the Black Lives Matter folk did that, both at Netroots Nation and also at, at Bernie Sanders talk and uh, or the talk where Bernie was speaking in, in Seattle, um, I was very supportive of it because I feel as though what they were trying to do was shake up rooms or in the case of the outdoor rally in Seattle, a group that was overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly, quote unquote, progressive. But frankly, and I've you know been one of those white progressives in that kind of space who was wasn't thinking enough about race early on and maybe didn't see the connections. And I think what uh, BLM was saying and certainly what I'm saying, trying to reinforce their narrative, not to usurp it from them, not to lead with it, but to reinforce it, is that there can't be economic justice in this country unless there's racial justice in this country. We just heard clips featuring Tom Hartman quoting Martin Luther King Jr. on the need for democratic socialism in order to fight for racial and economic justice, Michael Kimmel's TED Talk on why gender equality is good for everyone, men included, Professor Richard Wolff interviewed Dr. Harriet Fraud in two parts to discuss how white men's position at the top of society, combined with the forces of patriarchy, makes them largely unable to see or understand the changing forces of economics and gender equality, sending them 
them into group-wide depression. Laura Flanders talked about how critical it is for the next economic system to not leave anyone behind, requiring us to focus on both capitalism and intersectionality. Tom Hartman looked at the same issue of how white men are struggling with a changing socioeconomic landscape, but this time from the angle of racism. And finally, Laura Flanders spoke with anti-racism educator Tim Wise about the way racism has given white folks a false sense of inflated self-worth that gave them a set of unsustainable expectations that have begun to crumble, leading to a lot of psychological distress. And, of course, Tim also mentioned the critical need to incorporate racial justice into our coalition building for economic justice. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Eamon calling from Auburn, California. Just calling to comment on your last episode about a your second episode about Donald Trump and the rise of, of fascism. My comment is, is a question, actually. Are, are any of us surprised by this? I'm not. I mean, look at the way most people work at, at, at corporations or you know, big enterprises in, in our country, and it's the system that that's usually uh, built upon is the same kind of thing that Trump would represent, a managerial, top-down... I mean, that's how presidency is are but this would just be a full-blown naked form of just authoritarianism and are we surprised by that i'm not i'm not at all you know we got a good dose of it back in the country when when reagan was president people saw this you know he was an actor a bad actor a b-movie actor and when he became governor you know i think i might have said this before but everyone was like he can never be governor of california the biggest and uh, most powerful state he did it you know people and then he ran for president against Ford, they thought, no, he can't do it, and he lost by a very slim margin, you know, against Prince President Ford, and then he came back in 80, and what did he do? He became president, and what did he do to our country? Some people say his legacy is mixed. I don't. He did, you know, he pretty much brought the country into into a situation where it's it's the beginning, it's the, it was a rolling back of the New Deal and the beginning of a new gilded age for people in power and people with the means of power so Donald Trump being called a fascist doesn't surprise me but what shouldn't surprise anyone is that it kind of feels like the American people want this or at least people on the right want it and I don't know I don't I don't know what we can do besides try to fight it at every turn but I mean if he wins we deserve it that's what I'm just saying as Americans not personally but as Americans we deserve whatever we get Um, That's a bummer, but that's what I feel. So thanks again for everything, Jay. Bye. Hello, Jay. This is uh, Arkel. Long time no call, (laughs) because I haven't had a phone for years. But I'm recording this one on Audacity because I just had to respond to your caller on episode uh, 1018 and talking about... um, the, uh, the chairwoman of the Nevada Democratic Party and the, and her, you know, claiming she got death threats. Um, I actually don't know if that is accurate or not. The problem I have with your caller, though, is that he really did just leap to that assumption that it was made up and didn't provide any evidence. Again, speaking only about the death threats. I mean, it's like, yeah, so she's a Hillary supporter and, you know, I'm not personally, but whatever. The thing is, it's just all too common, particularly when the ones who are 
saying that they've been getting death threats are women, for people to just be really dismissive about it. And that that claim just really pushed my button there because um, I, I have colleagues who were personally victimized by, you know, Gamergate in 2014. And of course, one of the things that the Gamergaters like to say is that, you know, women and their male allies who, or gender queer allies, who claim they're getting death threats are, quote unquote, making it up for attention. You know, even when they provide screen caps and whatnot, it's like, or they'll provide screen caps where the email address is not blocked out, and of course the same people who claim that they aren't getting death threats are mad at them for publishing the death threats without the personal information redacted, you know, accusing them of doxing. So, it's like, you know, whether regardless really of if uh, Miss Lang's claims of death threats are true or not, I, I have no cause to doubt it, because even though I am a Bernie Sanders supporter, I'll be the first to admit that some of the other Bernie's supporters have been awful. Uh, I was watching them be awful for months before the mainstream media started covering them, back when they were only really going after Black Lives Matter people. You know, it was only when they started attacking white women that the mainstream media suddenly took notice. Gee, wonder why. But but yeah, the, the, the caller who just leapt right to that without any evidence whatsoever that the that the, 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 the death threats were false, that just really irked me. And I just don't think that kind of behavior is acceptable from people who call themselves progressives. I mean, like, you know, the, the, the hashtag listen and believe exists for a reason. I mean, and it doesn't refer just to death threats, but also sexual assault and stuff like that. But it, it, again, it exists for a reason. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Another quick reminder, please continue voting at the Podcast Awards, podcastawards.com. The voting session is two weeks long, and we're more than halfway through. It ends June 12th, so you can help us finish strong by voting every day between now and the end of the voting period. Obviously, we're in the news and politics category. It takes 30 seconds. You go to podcastawards.com. You put us in the news and politics category. Vote for any other shows you want to. Put in your name, email address, submit, verify your vote. Couldn't be easier uh, but I couldn't appreciate it more. Now today, a couple of things you may know about me. One, you may know that I'm a cyclist, not professional or anything like that, but I like to go ride a bike every once in a while. And you may know this because every year, I, for the past like three or four years, I've done a fundraiser where I raise money for climate change nonprofits by going on a very long bike ride. The idea is I ask you to donate to these organizations in exchange. I go on a like 300 mile long bike ride over the course of five days through this organization called Climate Ride. Last year, instead of doing a ride, I did a hike, but it was the same concept. And, and I'm going to do the ride again this year. So I'm going to start a fundraiser soon, but that's not what today is about. The other thing you may know about me is that I like analogies as clunky and as imperfect as they always are. I like them. I think they help people understand 
weird, vague concepts. And so I'm going to keep using them. Today, I have an analogy about cycling, and I really like it. So today's issue was all about sort of how the privilege that people experience blinds them to the realities of the world and then makes them feel worse when they experience equality because what they thought they had before was equality. And so now they're feeling oppressed. And it's not because in reality they're being oppressed. It's because in reality they're experiencing inequality that they never had before. And so here, here's the analogy. Uh, first of all, the air has an, a huge impact on a cyclist. The air could be uh, sitting still. You could have a strong headwind. You could have a strong crosswind. You could have a strong tailwind. But ho- however the wind is moving, it's going to impact your ride a lot. Now, when I first now, when I first started doing the climate ride, I was living in Chicago, and Chicago has this beautiful lakefront trail. So I got very familiar with it. It's about a 15-mile stretch of trail all along Lake Michigan in front of Chicago. And if you were to look on Google and ask, how long does it take to get from the north side of Chicago to the south side of Chicago, Google is going to tell you that it takes about an hour. But Google is wrong. And the reason for that is probably the one thing you know about Chicago. If you only know one thing, it's probably that it's windy there. They're sort of known for that. So if you start on the north side of Chicago, as I used to, and ride to the south side, Google says that takes an hour, but it actually takes about an hour and 15 minutes because most days there's a 20-mile-an-hour headwind blowing in your face, holding you back. Every stroke of the pedals is painful. You can't build up any inertia. You feel like if you stop pedaling, the wind is going to stop you dead where you are, and you're going to tip right over. So you ride for an hour and 15 minutes, and you're exhausted at the end. So you rest up a little bit, and then you turn around. And then the reverse happens. The ride home only takes 45 minutes. So Google's almost right. The average time it takes to ride that distance is an hour. But it takes an hour and 15 minutes one way when you have an oppressive headwind and only 45 minutes the other way when you have this amazing, blissful tailwind. And this is what I think privilege feels like. It's not how it works. I'm not explaining what privilege is. I'm explaining how it feels So when you have the wind against you, man, you feel it every single moment. It is brutal. It makes every stroke of the pedal almost demoralizing because you're working so hard and going so slow. But when you're in that reverse situation and you have that tailwind, you don't feel the wind at all. You're still pedaling. You got it cranked up into a high gear. You're spinning fast. And you're going fast and you feel like, hey, I'm working. I'm, I'm spinning these pedals. I'm making the bike go forward. And you don't feel the wind at all because you're going 20 miles an hour and so is the wind. So it just feels calm. It's amazing. It's a very bizarre feeling to be going that fast outside, not in a vacuum or anything, which I don't recommend. That's not healthy. But you're outside. You're in the air. You're going 20 miles an hour and you don't feel anything. And For a huge swath of people, 
primarily middle-aged and older white men, that's what life has been like always. Yeah, they still have to push. They got to spin the pedals. They got to put in the work to, to be pushing forward. But compared to everyone else, they've had a tailwind and they haven't been able to feel it this entire time. And so now things are changing a little bit and the tailwind that those older white men have always experienced is starting to die down. It's starting to be more evenly distributed. And so maybe for the first time in their lives, they're not beginning to feel a headwind exactly, but the tailwind is letting off enough that they can feel the wind at all. And this is the main point that I was trying to make in today's episode. It's sort of summed up in this nice quote that I found recently, and, and I don't think anyone knows who originally said this, but the quote is, when you're accustomed to privilege, equality feels like oppression. And I think that is so true on so many levels. And if you look at it in the right angle, that's not even being said in a disparaging way. It's just stating a fact. And I think this goes a long way to explaining why a bunch of white people felt that they had to stand up and shout all lives matter when black people decided to stand up and say black lives matter. Black people are trying to gain their equality and to the white people, that feels like oppression. And when Christians proclaim that their religious freedoms are being infringed because other people are starting to be treated equally, that's them feeling like they're being oppressed. Now, none of these things are true. No one's being oppressed. But they're beginning to feel this equality when, for their entire lives, they've had this privilege. They've had this tailwind. And that tailwind is starting to die down, and they're starting to feel that wind pushing in the other direction, and it feels like oppression. But that doesn't mean that they're bad people. They're just expressing how they actually feel, which is perfectly valid. Now, they're wrong, but I think understanding how and why they feel that way is critical to moving the conversation forward. And that's why I think today's episode is so important, because it actually highlights why Racism and sexism hurt white men in addition to those marginalized communities. Because if you didn't know any better and you heard stats about how white men were having a hard time and starting to do drugs and becoming alcoholics and committing suicide at record rates, you, you may think, wow, like, I guess we've gone too far in the other direction. You, you know, we, we've overcorrected and now white men are being horribly oppressed. And that's not true at all. But they feel like it's true, and for a person's mental health, that can be all it takes. All you have to do is feel like something's true for it to have a profound impact on how you perceive the world, society, and yourself in relation to it. There was a quote from the last episode that I really like from Brian Stevenson that we're, we're now sharing on, on social media. It says, you know, I think we've got a generation of people who are white in this country who were born to households where they were taught, either directly or indirectly, that they're better than other people because they're white. And that's a terrible thing. And I want those communities to be liberated from the burden of racial bias. We are all compromised by this, not just people of color. And that's the message I think we need to keep hammering home because – there is no alternative. We have to make progress on these issues, racism and sexism, but there's no reason we should have people suffering needlessly at the same time just because they don't understand what's going on. If, if all these older white guys think that they're being oppressed and that leads them into a pit of depression, we should make efforts to correct that. And luckily, 
the main way to correct it is to help them understand what's going on. Help them understand, hey, listen, you're not being oppressed. You're just losing your privilege. You've had a tailwind your whole life and you didn't know it. And that tailwind is dying down. Now you're experiencing what everyone else has always experienced. Welcome to the club. Now, keep those votes for the podcast awards coming in at podcastawards.com and keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. Most recently, of course, that quote from Brian Stevenson that we just heard. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained We can see past our own sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can see past our own sad stories And wonder